And may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and our departing. So um, I hope you find what's useful for you here today and um, that you leave here more joyful and peaceful and hopeful. And um, in light of what Dawson Taylor did here last Sunday, and it's going to take you just a little while to change what we have been doing for a long time in here. We're going to change our opening response just by one word. So it is, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. And we're going to do that. Not just welcome, but celebrated. I'm glad you're here. So I have given a title to this time today called A House of Many Mansions. Now that phrase is going to be familiar to many of you who have a church-going experience. It's part of a speech that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. Um, this is a section in John where Jesus has all the I am statements. And because they have been so badly misunderstood, they have caused so much difficulty for the Christian religion. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And especially this one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everybody knows that. All right. So in John's version of the Jesus story, Jesus is about to be taken into custody and eventually executed. And like any of us would do in such circumstances, he decides to give a theological lecture. <laughs> By the way, uh, no biblical scholar takes this at, at a liberal, literal level. So in this um, theological lecture, Jesus says, let me give you a new commandment. Love one another the same way that I have loved you. Love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. When they see that you have love for one another. There was a preacher who was appointed to a new church where there had been much strife and contention and discord. The congregation was so relieved to be rid of their former pastor, and they were so grateful to be receiving this new preacher. They were so excited about this person. He ticked all of the right preacher boxes. He could preach. He could raise money. He attracted young people. He was wise in dealing with elderly members. He visited the sick. He had a reputation for resolving conflict, and his wife could play the piano. <laughs> so the first Sunday he was in this new position, everybody turned out at the church, and he gave a stunning sermon. The congregation was grateful, 
they were relieved because the former pastor's sermons were just dreadful. So the next Sunday there was standing room only. The choir had prepared an even better anthem for singing right before the preacher got up to deliver his sermon. And when he did give his sermon, it was word for word the sermon he had preached the Sunday before. <laughs> and the congregation was at a loss as to how to respond to this. They noticed it, of course, because it was an outstanding, unforgettable sermon. And the few who commented on it just wrote it off as kind of a fluke. Amazingly, the crowd for the next Sunday was even bigger because they were interested to see what this guy would be doing. Well, you guessed it. He preached the same sermon again. The fourth Sunday, the crowd was even bigger. And word for word, same sermon. Of course, by this time, the deacons had had enough of it. They called a meeting with the preacher. They'd given him a break before all this by saying he's under a lot of pressure. He's been packing and repacking. You know, maybe he's got a memory issue, whatever, but this was enough. So his is just too much to deal with. So um, they called him in for a meeting. The senior deacon addressed the matter, and they said, Preacher, we notice that you have preached the same sermon now four Sundays in a row. Can you explain yourself? And the preacher said, I think so. First of all, I'm glad and relieved that you have noticed. <laughs> I have preached the same Sunday every Sunday I have been here. And further, I intend to continue preaching it until you do what I am saying in this one. <laughs> If Jesus were here, he would preach this sermon again. I give a new commandment to you that you love one another as I have loved you. This is how everyone will recognize that you're my disciples when they see how much you love one another. And you know because you keep up with the news that many, many people who call themselves Christian have not done a very good job with this. It is also in this speech in John that Jesus says to his disciples, and he does this to calm their anxiety. He said, look, I'm about to head into territory that you cannot come into yet. Now, this is my paraphrase of that translation. Oh, he knows us so well. You remember it, right? We were there, and Peter... Impetuous Peter snaps, oh man, I'm with you all the way. And, Peter, and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're not going to make it through the night. You will deny me three times before the sun comes up. And Peter says, who, me? No, never. But we know what happened. And again, folks, this isn't history. This is a piece of wisdom literature about us when it comes to following Jesus. And then Jesus says this interesting thing. He said, but don't worry. Where I'm going, there's room for all of you. That's my, again, my translation of the phrase that's in John that's read at every funeral service in my father's house or many mansions. 
Well, what do I mean by using this title in a house of many mansions? Now that you are aware and awake and alert and woke, We're moving into another block of what it means to be a person of faith in this troublesome post-pandemic time. By the way, the word woke has an etymology that simply means awareness of racial and social injustice. Nothing more. It's not a four-letter swear word. So my intention is to move into what I anticipate to be a long series of teachings that... Um, uh, that these that, that about awareness that I've been giving um, have prepared us for. Now, if you've not been here for those talks that began actually last year, uh, they're on the internet, they're on the website. You can go back to the Ordinary Life site. You can download them in either printed or auditory form and, and uh, read those. And the the title that I've given the theme that I want us to move under is Love Letters to Modern Mystics. And I'm going to be elaborating on that theme before we're done today. So the love and compassion and forgiveness and understanding of God that Jesus was all about includes everyone. All who are and all that is. And we are in a flood of both political and religious fundamentalism that seeks to divide and exclude. And yet, the guide for the path that we are attempting to follow is clear. There's room for everybody here. Now, of course, love and compassion though they were the main emphasis of the ministry of Jesus, were not his exclusive focus. Two other concerns also received his attention, truth or honesty and freedom. And these matters are going to get our attention also as we go forward. So um, I tried to create a graphic for what I want to talk about today, and I just failed utterly, so I'm going to try to act it out. I, I want us to maintain an awareness of ourselves, an understanding of ourselves, that's a capital S, our evolving selves, and I want us to maintain an awareness of God or grace or sacred mystery or whatever word you want to use for that. And this understanding will also be evolving, so evolving understandings of self and God. And we need love and honesty to deal with these things if we are to experience the freedom that they offer us. Because we have culturally inherited notions of both God and ourselves that are not leading us to spiritual maturity. So you got it, the self is in one hand, God is in the other, and then we're going to use the perspective of Jesus to shape the lives that we are intended to have as we, we go forward. Now, this is tricky because we live in a time when there is nothing that is stable. Everything is in flux. And that's one of the reasons that back in the introduction to this awareness series, I introduced the Ken Wilber integral theory stuff. There is just so much to pay attention to. 
And this is exciting. It's overwhelming, but it's also exciting. There's such a rich wealth of material to draw on. Um, there's also a lot to earn, unlearn. There's a lot to let go of. Um, that's most of what mystics do, is let go. Um, most of us have grown up with the idea that it's what has evolved since the time of Jesus that's really important or of any uh, special significance, especially for humans. We're so narcissistic. But now we're learning otherwise. At least the information that would help us learn otherwise is available to us. Uh, we just have to keep it in mind as we try to go forward. Integral theory encourages us to pay attention to three central dynamics that are always going on in the background. And these are growth, change, and complexity. These are the three things that Ken Wilber says and all the evolutionary people talk about. The things that matter are growth, change, and complexity. They're taking place and we can either be part of them or we can stand by and watch. Now these things apply to those areas of concern that I just mentioned, self, God, and the journey. Everything grows and unfolds into a new way of being. And if we're going to live with authentic existence, we've got to learn to flow with this dynamic. By the way, since we're going to try our best to embrace all that are and all who all that is and all who are in this house of many mansions in a non-dual ma manner, these three things, growth, change, and complexity, have their unescapable undersides, okay? Um, I'm not going to get into these today, but it would be dishonest if I didn't highlight them, and those are decay, decline, and death. Because you can't have, and this should be obvious to us, in this season of the year, you can't have resurrection without death. So um, we celebrate the growth and change and complexity, and we don't want to deal with the decline and decay and death part. But it's there, and um, we'll, we'll get into it. Now, the balancing act that doing this walking a path that is no path is that we have... God in one hand and self in the other, right? God, self, and then what I'm calling, what Paul called the mind of Christ or the perspective of Jesus as our guiding light. Now I'm gonna say some things about each of these three things today and my intention is for us to come back and delve into these in deeper ways. Um, and I have provided feedback cards for today. And uh, Joshua, and are going to, the, those two wonderful people are going to hand out these cards and pens, and you don't have to do this. There will also be some in the back of the room. Uh, if you have questions or concerns or hopes or wishes or whatever out of today's presentation that would help shape what goes forward, I want you to write that on the card, and you can leave it. You can also send me an email. I'm easily accessible through the Ordinary Life website. Um, I'd rather do that than you call me. Um, the calls are overwhelming at the moment. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to say thank you all for your love and support and prayers for Sherry. Um, she is doing um, well. 
the first loving thing she said to me this morning was, I need a pain pill. So, but she, truthfully, she came home from the hospital after having total shoulder replacement, and the first thing she did was clean out the dishwasher. So, I know. I have two nurse modes, I was telling somebody. I can be Florence Nightingale or Nurse Ratchet. And <laughs> that's me. So, anyway. I'm interested in what you put on these cards because I, I'm going to be teaching things that are contrary to what you've heard if you grew up in the church or what you've assumed. And um, I'd, I, I would like to amplify on these and be given a chance to explain if I can. When, when, <clears throat> when I was in the seminary, one of the people we had to read in a section called Moral Philosophy was a Danish theologian called Soren Kierkegaard. And he wrote, there are two ways to fool people. One, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true, and the other is to refuse to believe what is true. And today, coming to us from the disciplines that make up what we call evolutionary cosmology, as well as from what we are learning from the richness of integral theory, we are presented with truths that simply were not accessible to us a few years ago. New things that we didn't know that are replacing what we thought we did. And that's in every area, in the most difficult areas that people have for new truths to break in are religion and politics. It's amazing to me that people in this country, many people in this country, decry socialism until they get in trouble, and then they want the government's help. Just put that out. So I believe that when this new information is received by people like you, who are open and who have the capacity to respond to truth with truth, then change begins to occur. And one of the changes that I am shooting for is that we grow in our mystical awareness of life and living. The longer I do this work, the truer it seems to me what Carl Honor said when he said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he will not exist at all. Forgive his sexist language, he didn't know any better. And I don't quote Rahner often, but you need to know that he is considered one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. Now, it's just impossible to grow up in Western culture without some understanding and awareness of Jesus, no matter how erroneous that information may be. And so it is impossible to grow up in Western culture without some understanding of God. The um, God of Christian belief was an understanding of God that we inherited from Judaism. God was the creative force that brought everything into being. Now you can see this in the first few chapters of Genesis. You can also see this in the Gospel of Thomas, which I am understood was a source of teachings in here for a while, some time ago. God is this brooding, creative, mother-nurturing sustenance 
that caused things in the beginning. That vision of God was lost pretty early on. It gave way to an understanding where God, and we're going to talk about this, how this developed, but this gave way to an understanding of God. This occurred about 10,000 years ago where God was removed from the earth and put in the sky. God lived above the earth and he dealt out judgment and fear. He dealt out judgment and fear. I cannot prove this, but I am willing to bet that most every adult's unconscious, reflexive image of God is that of a male who is mostly angry and removed from us. I can't prove that. But it's certainly the image of God that I got as a kid when I was growing up in the Southern Baptist Church in Tennessee. And the reason that I needed Jesus was that Jesus would help me get right with this God so that when I died, I would go to heaven. That was it. Now, in the Western world, when people say they are atheist, atheistic, they are atheist about this God, the sky God who is angry and male. Some of us, as we grew and as we read and as we learned and we wanted to maintain our commitment to the church, and we learn more about social construction or reality of both religion and, and, and other things, um, we, we came to understand that our, our understanding of God was just not big enough, that we had to expand. And um, so there was a guy who has actually a translation of the New Testament that's not bad, um, but he, he wrote a book in 1952, I'm dating myself, um, he wrote a book in 1952, J.B. Phillips, called Your God is Too Small. And uh, many of us read that book and we went, whoa, this is good, God. The big God in the sky is much bigger than we thought. This book was a blockbuster, bombshell of a book in 1952. You couldn't find a publisher for this book today because it's irrelevant. Now, there are some things in J.B. Phillips' book that are useful to know. But mm, today, who cares? That's kind of the mindset. And then we clicked along till the Hubble telescope came in, and the Hubble telescope said, whoa, it's much bigger than that. When the Hubble telescope came along, we discovered that we were living in a field of energy where I grew up thinking that maybe there were one or two other galaxies. There are now like two billion galaxies in the observable universe. And the scientists who study these things say that there are two trillion galaxies in the universe. Two trillion. You cannot get your mind around that. Now, some of you sitting here remember how impacted I was when I first heard Ilya Delio, and she used words like evolving, expanding, creative, and entangle to help us understand the field of energy in which we live. But 
we were still applying this awareness to our inherited understanding of God as out there. Just much bigger, more incomprehensible. And now come along the religious anthropologists who inform us that what we all in the Western world live with is what they call the monotheistic legacy. Prior to around 10,000 years before the common era, there was no sky god. Before then, people believed in and practiced relating to a great spirit who is understood to be embodied not in some distant heaven out there, but in the events of daily life and living. And it was within and among themselves and in the creation that surrounded them that they encountered the vitality of the living spirit. Now, I'm going to talk later about how the monotheistic understanding of God developed. Just be aware that, and this is two, these are two of the most important things that you can know in psychology, I believe. It's about projection and transference. The monotheistic God is a creation of human projection. Humans created this image of God. Mostly men out of a tribal culture where power and dominance reigned and where right and rules were important. And power was incredibly important. And winning was even more important. And we live in a society today that is addicted to power. So today you see cropping up in various religions a new strain of fundamentalism, which is rooted in an exclusive patriarchal ruling God who will tolerate no other. So we create a God in the image of our own insatiable hunger for power and control. And people worship this monster that they have created, and they try to get others to do so as well. This is what you see being played out in politics today. I know what books you should read and which books you shouldn't. Don't say gay, and you see it in transgender issues, anti-abortion laws, anti-woke crusades, book banning, all the rest. So I hope as we go forward to offer teachings that will enable us to trust in the benevolence of the empowering spirit and understandings of both God and humans that Jesus manifested when he said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends, the empowering community, not up there, right here. Now, I think this is just a taste of the delicious territory that we have in front of us in a new, more loving understanding of God. And this is the understanding that I want you to hold in one hand. And in the other, we're going to hold a growing, evolving understanding of self. Now, remember... Um, and again, if you missed out, go back and read these in the past. All this has laid the foundation for this. 
Your daily spiritual practice should consist of, I'm being bossy here, two words, God, who are you? God, who am I? Over and over and over. God, who are you? God, who am I? Several years ago, I had a counseling client say to me at the beginning of one of our sessions, he said, you know, until recently, I thought I was someone I knew. <laughs> I've been at work wondering about God and self all my conscious life, and I'm still learning. And I'll be old enough to vote next year. One of the things that I've come to believe most assuredly about us as homo sapiens is that most of who we are is unknown to us. Now this is very analogous to the cosmological energy field in which we live. Until recently we were arrogant. We thought we knew what's out there. But we know now we don't. And, as Holly Hudley has said, when you map what happens in here, it's very similar to what is out there. It's unknown to us, the brain, its functions, and we're so complex in our makeup. So there resides within each one of us motivations and identities and fears and addictions that we're unaware of. And if we are unaware, become aware of them, we become ashamed of them. We hide them. Well, one of the first things that I learned in clinical training, uh, thanks to Dr. R. Progoff, is we don't know what we don't know. And what we don't know makes tremendous decisions for us. I mentioned to you in that series on awareness a couple of books that have been incredibly important to me. The seminal works of Paul Vatlovic, How Real is Real and the Pragmatics of Communication. There have been few books that have influenced my thinking any more than these two. And it was from Vatlovic that I got the idea that we cannot not communicate. So um, when somebody comes in, if a couple comes into a counseling session, we have trouble communicating. Maybe I, I don't say this, but my response is, no, you don't. You have trouble talking because we cannot not communicate in the presence of another person. We're always communicating. Usually our dogs and cats pick up on it before other people do. You know what I'm talking about. You can sense what's going on with people when you approach them. But another seminal thinker who also influenced my own thinking was R.D. Lang. R.D. Lang was a Scottish-born psychiatrist who came into the field about the t same time that Vaslavic and those other people did. And, and you can see his influence in my own thinking in these words. The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice, that we fail to notice, <laughs> there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice <laughs> shapes our thoughts and deeds. Now the reason this strikes every one of you with that uh-huh laugh response is you see yourself in it. 
All the time we fail to notice, and we fail to notice that we fail to notice. My daughter this week <clears throat> sent me this. Say you're in a room with 400 people. 36 don't have health insurance. 48 live in poverty. 85 are illiterate. 90 have untreated mental illness. And every day at least one person is shot. But two are trans, so you decide ruining their lives is your top priority. That's our culture. Becoming fully human and embodied self is a lifelong process. It is not automatic, and it is not age-dependent. I know people who are 65 who act like three-year-olds. Most of them are in office. <laughs> Further, the human self is like a field. If you, if you leave it untended, it falls fallow. So taking on the conscious act of continually growing the self is something I am constantly urging you to do when I nag you about having a daily spiritual practice. If you don't, it will cost you. Now, having a daily spiritual practice is hard for us for many, many reasons. And one reason is that few of us suffer. We have such good lives. We are so comfortable. We are not living in the horrors of Ukraine, wondering if a missile's going to strike out there in a minute. We don't have tanks running up and down Main Street. We're not wondering where we're going to get our next meal. Having a cushy life, which by the world standards everybody in this room does, may not be helpful if it keeps us from identifying with the suffering of our brothers and sisters who are out there and developing hearts of compassion that work to heal the wounds of the world. Uh, since I first heard it years and years and years ago, I've always loved the Zen Buddhist story. You know I love teaching stories, and I've loved this story for a long time. You know it. It's the story of the Zen monk who's walking through the forest, and all of a sudden he starts being chased by tigers. And so he starts running, and he runs to the edge of a cliff, and he can't stop, so the momentum takes him over. And on the way down, he grabs a tree. And he looks down below, and there are tigers below, but he looks over to the side, and there's a strawberry bush growing out of the side of the mountain, so he plucks the strawberry and enjoys the delicious strawberry. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that story was created to emphasize the importance of enjoying the present moment, right? And that's how I've always heard it and taught it until just recently. And now I see the story differently. We are being chased by tigers. And there are tigers below. I have never felt so anxious about the state of my country as I do now. You don't know how much longer you got. None of us does. 
Now, I tell you something I've also learned about us. Every one of us knows where we're stuck in the process of life. Every one of us knows where you're stuck. If I were to ask you to take that card that you got and write down where you're stuck in life, you would know. You know whether you're on the shore watching the water or whether you're in the flow. You know. So one of the reasons I've chosen to call this theme Love Letters to Modern Mystics is what all wise, useful, spiritual teachings and religious rituals are about are designed to communicate love, not doctrinal correctness. I could care less what you believe, but I do care that we love one another. In his most recent book that I am reading, Dharmar Damuraku says, at every level of life, evolution requires us to forego the old in favor of the new. A novel perspective evoked by the lure of the future rather than based on allegiance to the past. So my image is that we have an evolving understanding of God in one hand, an evolving understanding of self in the other, and that we're being guided on this path that is no path by Jesus and his teachings. So what I would like to experience in my own life and convey in my teachings is not faith about Jesus, but the faith of Jesus. I would like to free Jesus not only from the theological confines in which he has been imprisoned by Christian history and the church's teaching, but also from the way Jesus is being abused and misused today in the fundamentalist move to take over everything and damn everyone who doesn't agree with them. So I want to be real clear to everyone, even especially maybe those who are watching, that if you put church doctrine or what is in the Methodist Book of Discipline at your heart of your faith, you have made a huge mistake. And if that is what you teach others or condemn them with, you are practicing religious abuse. The faith of Jesus is dynamic and vibrant and loving and empowering, not abusive and divisive and exclusive. Now, it means that along the way, we're going to be talking about some things like church teachings like scripture and incarnation and atonement and sin and salvation and what's next, minor topics like that, <laughs> in ways that you probably haven't heard about before, but that's okay. And, and I want to look at how, how and what Jesus taught. How did Jesus interpret his scripture? What did he teach about himself? What did he think was important about life and living? Now, if you leave here today and you go out there and you ask somebody, are you religious? What they're going to hear is you ask them, do they go to church? That's what they're going to hear. And uh, if you ask somebody if they are Christian, they will say, well, I believe in Jesus. Don't ask them to elaborate on that because they can't do it or they will embarrass themselves by saying something that is so narcissistic and, and self-referential. Jesus died to save me from my sins so I won't go to hell when I die. 
this is the only correct religious belief to have. Any of that is quite a leap from Jesus himself who never believed either of those things. Now, though I believe Paul, St. Paul, got several things horribly wrong, I agree with his admonition that we should have the mind of Christ. And that will make us mystics. A mystic is not someone who lives some kind of elevated suspension out of this world, but rather one who has an intimate relationship with God in and through a growing awareness of self. This is exactly what entanglement means. God's primary means of revelation is sitting in the seat you're occupying. God's primary means of revelation is sitting in the seat next to you. God's primary means of revelation is seated in the heart of the homeless person you will meet when you leave here today. God's primary means of revelation is in that garden that kid is trying to develop behind this building. God's primary means, oh, you get the point. There's nowhere that sacred is not. The historical Jesus was in his person and his teachings empowering, uplifting, and I think irresistible. Jesus' teachings are practical. If he wanted to save people from anything, it was from their slavish adherence to traditional views and replace those with a growing faith that allows us to adapt principles intelligently so that they can help us live fully and include the whole human community. Jesus' teachings are affirming and affirmative. Jesus' teachings are transformative. Jesus' teachings are hopeful. This most recent St. Patrick's Day in Dublin, Ireland, Pat and Mike were going from work to the pub to have a pint, and um, they came to the cathedral and Pat said to Mike, uh, hey, would you wait here a minute? I want to go in and make confession. So Pat goes in and goes into the confessional book and knocks on the little door. And when the priest opens it, he says, um, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. And the priest says, yes, son, what's the nature of your sin? And Pat says, Father, I had me away with a woman. And there's a silence from the other side of the confessional the priest bends down and opens that little sliding door and says Patrick Flanagan is that you again <laughs> said yes father it is I this is the same confession you've been in here the last five times I'll not be offering your forgiveness so easily now tell me the name of the woman you've been with ah <laughs> uh, father I couldn't be doing that the priest asked was it the Murphy woman Father, I can't be saying. Was it the O'Toole widow? Father, 
I can't tell you. Was it the O'Connor woman from the parish next over? Father, I'm not going to be giving you that information. Then I'll not be offering you forgiveness, Patrick. You've been in here asking for cheap grace. I'll have none of it. Now be gone with you. So Pat left, and as he got outside, Mike asked, Well, Pat, did you have a good confession? And Pat said, No, but I got three good leads. <laughs> if you'll take them with you, you got three good leads today. Go live, hopefully, until hopefully we get to meet again. You never know. But with an evolving awareness of God in one hand and an evolving awareness of self in the other, and be guided by the life and teachings of Jesus that I promise you will shine a bright light on the limitless capacity we have to live fully and love unconditionally and to grow spiritually. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch yourself, and I'll see you here next week, which is Palm Sunday, so be here. Thank you.